The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning, everybody. It is so great to be with you again, and uh, happy Mother's Day to all of your moms. How many moms are there out there? Why don't you stand up? Let's, I know we already clapped for you, but we want to see who you are. How many moms out there? Wonderful. That's so great. And um, my wife brings her greetings, but she decided to leave me for Mother's Day to be with her children. Amazing thought. And so she is in Denver with two of our kids, and our grandson turns one on Thursday. And so uh, I'll be heading out on Wednesday to join her, but she is there and having a great time. And I'm glad that she gets to be with the kids on, on Mother's Day. And I hope you all have a very special day today. And, um, you know, just remind your kids that in the Bible, somewhere it must say, give your mom a back rub on Mother's Day. I'm sure it's in there somewhere because I know it's in there for Father's Day. Um, so I hope you enjoy your day. I made uh, a major pastoral blunder a number of years ago on Mother's Day. So at the church I pastored, we kind of did what uh, you guys do here where we had like a time in the service where we recognized the moms and let them know we love them. And then I would just continue in the preaching time to preach on whatever the passage next was. And that particular Mother's Day, I preached on the subject of adultery. And for some reason, it didn't go over really well. And uh, I've done a lot of things in my life one time. And that was one of those times. But I should write a book, uh, The Things I've Done One Time. All the things I never would do again. A lot of those in my marriage, like, what was I thinking when I did that? But anyway, um, I hope today's a special day for you. And it is good to be back. And, you know, the board asked me to come and and to do a few more sermons before Michael gets here, and I'm glad to do that and to help out in that way, and also to help prepare you for a new pastor. And uh, it's been a long time that you've, for, since you've had a new pastor, which is a wonderful thing that Dave Whitaker was here for so many years. Um, and I know Michael best a little bit, just a little bit. But here's what's interesting is our daughter, Noelle, goes to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and she happens to attend a church called Moody Church, she happens to be on the volunteer high school staff for the last few years working with high school students under a guy named Michael Best. Isn't that crazy? I knew nothing about his being interested or anything like that until way into the process. And uh, so I met Michael at, her, her, our daughter's name is Noelle, at her junior recital. She's a music major at Moody. And, and Michael and Kristen came to support her. That says something about him, right? And then when Noelle um, had to uh, stay away uh, from school for a semester because of health issues. It was something we didn't expect to happen. All her stuff was still in her dorm at school, so we needed to find a place for her stuff. And who did she call? She called Michael and Kristen, and they took her stuff and housed it in their place. So that says a lot for them right there. And I think uh, you have chosen a really special person. Um, he's got great experience at that church. Moody Church is an outstanding church. He's got a wonderful education. I think his age fits well. Um, you have so many young families here, and he's a young family. And um, I've also watched him preach because I just I stalk preachers online, and I like to watch them. And you got a really good preacher, and I'm just really excited for, for your future. I do want to give you just a few thoughts about bringing on a new pastor. So twice I have been a new pastor. 
Well, the first time I was 28 years old, second time I was 38 years old. But um, I remember uh, what it was like in those days. I want to give you five things to, to consider uh, about Michael and Kristen and their daughter coming. First of all, embrace them warmly. Overwhelm them with the welcome. Uh, b- bring them you know, a card to say, we're glad you're here, and give them a gift certificate to a, a, a local restaurant so they don't have to pay for it themselves, but they can learn about the local fare that's, that's here. Give them a little gift for their, for their daughter. Uh, have them over to your house for a, a meal. Just go out of your way to, to welcome them to this new area. By the way, just in case you know this, Chicago and Morgan Hill are just slightly different, so it might take some adjusting uh, for them here. Secondly, allow them to be themselves. Uh, I want you to re- remember his name is Michael Best and not Dave Whitaker, right? He is a different person. Allow Michael to be Michael. God created him to be who he is, and he's been called by God to be the pastor of this church. Let him be who he is. Third, allow Michael to make changes. <laughs> See, I can say stuff that other people might not be able to say. Allow him to make some changes. Why? Because he's going to make some changes because God has called him to lead. Let him do that. Allow him to, to, to lead in those ways. And, and don't have these words come out of your mouth to him. But we've never done it that way before. So maybe now it's time to do something a little bit different in a different way. Fourth, with that, allow Michael to make mistakes. Because he's going to make mistakes along the way. Because he's a leader, he's going to make mistakes. And he's young. He's going to make mistakes. Allow him to make mistakes and grow in the job. And then lastly, pray for Michael and Kristen and their family on a daily basis. Pray before they come. Pray when they're here. Maybe it's dinner time when you pray and you just in your prayer thanking God for the food. Pray for them. Pray for them every single day. God's blessing upon them. I think you're going to have a great future with them coming here. Let's, let's bring this time to the Lord. And I want to pray. And we're going to jump into our, our passage in the book of Acts. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have once again to be gathered together. Lord, I want to thank you for the the mothers that are here, both here present and online. Lord, may you bless them today. Some of them might be discouraged today. Some might be tired. But Lord, may they feel loved and blessed today. And Lord, as we look at your word, I pray that, that you would just move us from the inside out with regards to what you have to say to us today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So take your Bibles and turn them to Acts chapter 17. Still New Testament, fifth book in. Acts chapter 17, as we continue on in this amazing book, we are in Paul's second missionary journey. And it's the, 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 the key characters in this passage are Paul and Silas. We do know that Timothy is with them as well. But Paul and Silas are the focus of this one. Paul is the apostle, had that dramatic conversion. And Silas is a leader and a teacher in the early Jerusalem church. He also served with Peter in in the ministry. He travels with Paul on this missionary journey. And the apostles called him faithful and one who encouraged and strengthened others around him in the ministry in Acts 15. So he's kind of like a Barnabas. He, He strengthens, he's faithful, he encourages people around him the kind of person you would want to have on on your team. They are in Macedonia. They've just been in the town of Philippi, and now they're in Thessalonica. Macedonia is a Roman province just north of of Greece up in there. And that's where we find ourselves as we hit Acts chapter 17. Let's look at this beginning in verse 1. 
that when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonon, Apollonia, excuse me, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and, prov- and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Christ whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, not a few of the leading women. So here we are in Thessalonica, and you know there's First and Second Thessalonians letters that are written to the church in Thessalonica. And Paul and Silas head for the local synagogue. That's what they do when they get there. A synagogue is a place of worship for the Jewish people. They were spread out throughout the known world for Jews as they had dispersed to different places. It's where they taught about God. It was a place where Judaism was a focus. It's kind of like a local church, if you will. In fact, throughout the book of Acts, we see that there are synagogues in places like Damascus and Cyprus, Galatia, Macedonia, Greece, Thessalonica, Berea, and more. They're all over the place. And no matter what town that Paul is in, he first goes to the synagogue and he goes to talk about Jesus. It says in verse two, as is his custom. It's his habitual behavior. It's his usual way of acting. He goes to a town, he goes to the synagogue, he teaches in the synagogue. And what does he teach to these Jews in the synagogue? He teaches about Jesus. He tells them about the Messiah and he walks them through as as someone would as an apologist. He he is he's an apologist, one who makes a defense for who Jesus is. He's also an evangelist. He always points people to Jesus. That's what he does when he goes. In fact, in verses two and three, it says that he would reason, he would explain, he would prove. He would reason, explain, and prove. He's an apologist, he's an evangelist. And what would he reason about? What would he explain? What would he prove? Well, you have to understand that the Jewish people had been waiting for a coming Messiah for a long time. But in most of their minds, the Messiah was one that was going to come and he was going to rule on the earth. In fact, he wasn't just going to rule on the earth. He was going to get rid of the Roman rule that was so oppressive to them and supplant Caesar as the king and set up reign and rule in Jerusalem. And they were going to be the most, you know, a strong nation and all of that. Messiah was going to come and do that on this earth. So they had a misconception of of what the Messiah was going to do. So Paul would go into the synagogue and he would teach them about the Messiah that was Jesus and what he actually did. It's a three-point sermon. This is what he would give when he would go to the synagogue. And we learned this in these verses. Point number one, he would say that it was necessary that the Messiah had to suffer and die necessary that the Messiah had to suffer and die, which goes completely against their thinking that the Messiah would come reign on this earth and rule and be all powerful and his kingdom would not end. Because why did he have to die? He said, because he had to pay the price for all sin, right? He had to pay the price for all of our sin because the wages of sin, the price of our sin is death. Point number two, he would say it was necessary that the Messiah had to raise, had to rise from the dead. He had to suffer, he had to die, and he had to rise from the dead. Why would he have to rise from the dead? Because he had to overthrow the stronghold of death, overcoming the very, the very stench of death and bringing the victory over death. It showed that he had power over death and therefore had resurrection life. 
And if we put our faith and trust in him, we too, when we die, will be resurrected to eternal life. He had to suffer, he had to die, he had to rise from the dead. Point number three, he would say, Jesus is the Messiah, the one who died and rose from the dead. The Messiah already came. The Messiah already suffered. He already died. He already rose from the dead. It's Jesus. He's already come, and he points people to do that. Been here, done that. It's Jesus. In fact, go back to verses two and three again. And Paul went in to the synagogue, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. That's his message as he goes from synagogue to synagogue. He reasons, he explains, and he proves. Verse 4 tells us that some who heard it were persuaded, not just the Jews, but also some of the Gentiles, and on top of that, some of the prominent influential women, which is interesting because when we get to the next town in Berea, it says the same thing, that a lot of the prominent influential women also gave their lives to Jesus Christ. And let's just say it because it's true. Women, more than men, are spiritually sensitive. I've seen that over time. There's more women in churches than men, more women purchase Christian literature than men, more women read their Bible than men. And here again, there's particular emphasis on some of the, the key women in that, in that town, in that synagogue, gave their life to Jesus Christ. So ministry effectiveness, all is going great. Things are going well in Thessalonica. People are giving their life to Christ. End of story, right? <laughs> then comes the next five words in verse five. But the Jews were jealous. But the Jews were jealous. The Jewish religious leaders were jealous. Let's look at verse five. <clears throat> but the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city authority, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. They are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. <laughs> what were the... Jewish religious leaders all up in arms about? What were they so jealous about? The same things we get jealous about today. Our crowd used to be bigger, now their crowd's bigger. The attention we used to have was, was significant, now they're getting all the attention. They were jealous, and jealousy isn't a new problem. It's not a new problem in, in the story of, of the New Testament. When Jesus was arrested in Matthew chapter 27, it says that Pilate knew that it was out of envy they had delivered him up to be arrested. When the apostles were arrested in Acts chapter 5, it says that when the high priest rose up and all who were with him and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. When Paul was persecuted in Acts chapter 13, it says that when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, reviling him. Jealousy. When you're jealous, you feel threatened. You feel like you're going to lose something. <coughs> Excuse me. If you're dating someone, you have a boyfriend, you have a girlfriend, and all of a sudden, 
the one that you have such affection for starts to flirt with somebody else or somebody else flirts with them, you feel threatened that you're going to lose what you care about. And so you start to respond. You start to react. Jealousy means you, you're, you're, you're threatened. You're going to lose something that's important to you. If your spouse seems to be a little bit, uh, you know, uh, impressed with somebody more than they should be or like vice versa, somebody towards your spouse, then you begin to feel threatened and you begin to act a little bit differently because of that. Or you're in a job situation and there's a job promotion that's up on the table and all of a sudden you see a few of your coworkers trying to snuggle up to the, the boss to get that promotion, that jealousy can kick in and, and you, want to, you want to stop that threat, et cetera. Amount of followers on social media, they have more followers than I have. I feel jealous about that. I want to do something about that to, to boost my numbers up. And, and so what do we do when we're jealous? We try to eliminate the threat. We want to get rid of it. So what do they do to get rid of a threat? Well, they, they incite a riot. Sounds so 2021, doesn't it? <laughs> did I just say that aloud? I did, yeah. What do they do? Verse 5. Interesting wording from the English Standard Version. They recruit wicked men of the rabble. What does that mean? Well, the NIV calls, it, calls them bad characters. The New American Standard calls them wicked men. The King James Version says they're lewd fellows. Huh. New Living Translation, they're troublemakers. The Good News Bible, they're worthless loafers. And the, in the message, says they're brawlers. 2021 Version, they're bad dudes. These are bad guys that don't have, uh, you know, they don't care about anything but stirring things up. So they get these wicked men of the rabble and it says they formed a mob. You know, just got people angry, got them all worked up, form a mob. And then they set the city in an uproar, it says. There's chaos now. And it says they attacked Jason's house. So who's Jason? Well, Jason was apparently the guy who housed Paul and Silas. And so they went to Jason's house to get Paul and Silas. Well, Paul and Silas were not there. Maybe they heard something was going on and they, they got out of there. So what do they do? Because Jason is protecting Paul and Silas, they take Jason and a few of the others that are followers of Christ and they drag them, it says, to the, to the city authorities and they shout accusations against them. So it's just a very volatile situation. <laughs> jealousy leads to all of this. Sometimes jealousy leads us to actions that we deeply regret later on. The accusation against Paul and Silas was this. Verse six, these men have turned the world upside down. These men have turned the world upside down. I love that accusation. I have it in my Bible on the side. It says here next to it, it says, great compliment. That's a great compliment. These men, by teaching about Jesus, by talking about the Messiah, from going from synagogue to synagogue, from city to city on this missionary journey, they're literally turning the world upside down with the news about this Jesus. Because people are following. People are believing. People are changing. People are following the old ways like they used to. It reminds me of the accusation against Jesus in front of the Jewish religious leaders in Luke 23.5, where it says that, that he was accused of stirring up the people. Stirring them up. And when I read that, I remember a few years ago, I, I thought, I want to be a stirrer up of people. I, I, want, I want people to have to grapple with stuff 
and have to think through things and maybe to change direction because of what the scriptures teach and say and because of who Jesus is in our life. I mean, let me ask a question. When is the last time you stirred anyone up or any group up by what you said about the Lord? When's the last time you spoke out in a way that caused some people to have some angst, not in rudeness, but because of the truth that was said? Remember, Thessalonica is in Roman territory where Caesar reigns supreme. It's important to note. So they load up an accusation against these Christians, and it's an accusation that is not false. It's a true accusation. What's the accusation? Verse 7. They're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. That's true. That's exactly what they believe. In fact, they would say that Caesar is subservient to Jesus. But in the Roman government, oh my goodness, that is so backwards. Caesar is the king. He's omnipotent. But not in a Christian's viewpoint. Christian's viewpoint is Jesus is the king. In fact, he's the king of all the kings and Lord of all the lords. And if you don't catch this, you don't understand the depth of, of what's going on here. In fact, let me help us catch this in an even deeper way. Even going back to the Old Testament where there was prophecies, people in the Old Testament who made predictions about what was going to come in, later on. They predicted about this coming Messiah. And in Daniel chapter 7, one of the prophetic books in the Old Testament, it says this about the coming Messiah. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's about the Messiah. And then at the birth of Jesus, many years later, after Daniel chapter 7 was written, at the birth of Jesus, the wise men want to figure out where is Jesus. They figure out he's in Bethlehem. But in that process, in Matthew chapter 2, they ask this question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And when Herod, the current king, heard this, he was troubled, as you can imagine. And the answer was in Bethlehem, for from Bethlehem you shall come a ruler, Matthew chapter 2, which is prophesied in the Old Testament. Then you go all the way till the rest of Jesus. And when he was arrested and stood before Pilate, in Matthew chapter 27, it says, now Jesus stood before the governor, before Pilate, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. Huh. Or in Luke 23, same scene. It says, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, they accuse him, and saying that he himself is Christ, the king. Same scene, John 19, before Pilate. Pilate said to the Jews, behold your king. And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. That's how desperate they were. They said, we'll follow the Roman king over Jesus being the king. Jesus has now suffered, died, rose again, ascended to heaven. And then Paul writes to the church in Philippi these words about Jesus. He says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everybody's going to bow down to him. Everybody's going to realize that he's the king. And then when you get to the end of the, of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, in chapter 17, it says this about the Messiah, about Jesus. They will wage war with the lamb. The lamb is Jesus. And the lamb will conquer them. 
for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And two chapters later in Revelation 19, on his robe, on Jesus' robe, and on his thigh, he has a name written. And what's the name? King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, this is a time, if we were a little different color here, we'd be saying, amen. 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 He is the king. And so this accusation comes that he is going against the Roman government because they're saying that there's another, another king than Caesar who's even uh, higher than Caesar, and they accuse them of this, and it is indeed true. Question, if Jesus is indeed the king of all kings, if he is indeed the Lord of all lords, what is our response to be? Our response is to bow down. Our response is to serve. Our response is to follow. Our response is to worship. Our response is to live for him. So let's go on. Verse 8 of chapter 17. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So come bail or here's some money and they let them go. And off they went. And then we see that on the road again now, they're going to take off in the dark of night to Berea, Paul and Silas and Timothy to get away from, from this. And they're going to go to Berea, which is 44 miles away from Thessalonica. If you want to figure out 44 miles, I drove this morning almost exactly 44 miles. Mount Hermon to here. Now, as a crow flies, not quite so far, but if you take the 17 to the 85 to the 101, 44 miles. That's how far they went to another town called Berea. And what's the first thing that they do when they get to Berea? What's their custom? They go to the synagogue to teach, right? Look at chapter 17, verse 11. But look at verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. First thing. Now, these Jews were more noble-minded, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Huh. Look at verse 12. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. The Berean Jews were called more noble than those in Thessalonica. How would you like to be the church in Thessalonica and know that that was said from the gospel writer Luke, who also wrote this, this account in Acts, that for the next 2,000 plus years, that your church would be compared to the Berean church and said that the Berean church was more noble than your church. It'd be like somebody saying that Morgan Hill is more noble than, uh, don't come out with a name out loud, but think of another church in town or, or over the hill and say that somebody actually wrote down they're more noble than thinking the other church. You say, <clears throat> what does this mean? Excuse me. Well, he's going to explain exactly why he says this. Before answering, I would like to say this, however, and that is, shouldn't a church strive to be a church that would be considered in the scriptures as, as more noble? Shouldn't be the desire of, of a church to say, okay, I want to find out what that means, and we want to be that kind of a church. This isn't just about an individual believer. This is about a group. This is about a church of individuals. 
what does it take to be called in the scriptures to be a church that's more noble? And wouldn't we want to be that? Certainly. So what does it mean to be more noble as a church? Number one, this church eagerly received God's word. They eagerly received God's word. Verse 11, they received the word of God with all eagerness. With all eagerness. Eager. You know, when a little kid's super eager, eager, they're just like jumping up and down. They can't wait, you know, for, for what's coming up. So I'm a big baseball fan. And uh, last, last season wasn't a great season because of COVID. And three days um, before our trip was supposed to happen for spring training with some dear friends of ours a year ago in Arizona, it got canceled because of COVID. Disappointing for sure. So this year, things opened up, spring training. We went with our dear friends. We went to spring training. We went to a game. I had not been to a baseball game in over a year. Actually, it would be almost two years because of how it all works. And I could not wait. We got, like, we're going to, you know, go to the stadium for the first game for spring training for us for that week. And it's like me and Dave, the other couple, the guy, uh, were like, okay, what time does the gates open? What time do they open? And we got there when it opened. In fact, actually, we stood in line a little bit before they even opened. And we were there for that hour and a half before it opened. And then we enjoyed the game. And then, you know, we kind of leaned a little bit afterward. And we went to five games in five days. It was so much fun. And for some of you, that would be like a nightmare and boring but um, you can repent. So anyway, but it was because the Bible starts with in the beginning, God created. So it's, I know it's a bad joke. All right. It's not Father's Day. It's Mother's Day. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But the eagerness that I had like a little kid, I just couldn't wait to go. Eager. Let me ask you a question. How eager are you to come to a worship service? How eager are you to, to open up your Bible and, and, and to worship the Lord and to, to be with other believers? How eager are you to be hungry for the word of God? How eager do you come with expectation to be changed from the inside out? I want to even recommend something to you, which some of you might say, oh, that's, you're old and, and it's old-fashioned. I, I recommend that you actually bring an actual physical Bible to church. You know, a lot, of, a lot of people don't do that because, you know, the scriptures are on the screens. I understand that. But I, I just think there's something about a physical Bible. And part of that is you can write notes in it. You can see what's before. You can see what's after. But this is what happens when, when your phone is your Bible. Turn it on. Huh. See, I didn't even know. Um, I have a message from Caleb. I have a message from my friend David. Um, my mind just went, boop. Be careful of being sidetracked. Come with a physical Bible in your hand and don't look at your, your phone the entire time that you're here. Don't get distracted and come with an eagerness to read and to study and to dig in. So a little over six years ago when we were preparing to move here for me to start working at Mount Hermon, uh, we were cleaning out things at our house as we we're getting ready to move. And there was a box in our basement in the storage area. Colorado, they have basements. It's wonderful things. And I opened the box, and, and in that box was another little box. And in that was a, a stack of letters, probably about 20, 25 letters, that I had written to my mom and dad during a, a year of my life. They were the year when I traveled with author and speaker Josh McDowell. I was an intern with him. I had taken, had a year of seminary, took a year off to travel with him. 
and then I went back to seminary. The reason that I, I wanted to do that year is because part of the internship, he was going to teach us how to speak and preach and things like that. So that'll be so valuable. And we traveled all over the country, me and another intern with him in parts of the world, and it had his books, and back then his cassette tapes, and sold all of those. And in the middle of that year, I also got engaged to Jane. And throughout that year, I wrote letters to my mom and dad. And when my mom and dad moved to a, a small care facility, um, my mom gave us kids back some of the things we'd given to them that we thought would be special that we would want to have. So here was a stack of letters. And I thought, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the first letter. I opened it up. And my mom had put the letters in perfect, um, in sequential order of when they were written in a nice little you know, rubber band. And I opened the first letter and I began to read it. And then I got curious and I opened the second letter, then the third, then the fourth, then the fifth. And I ended up reading for like an hour and a half, just sitting there reminiscing. I went through a year of my life. I was 23 when I wrote those letters. And I read from a young man who was hungry to learn, who wanted to know how to be a better preacher, how to be a better leader, I, I, somebody who wanted to know the scriptures in a deeper way. I, I read about a, a young man who was deeply in love with this girl that in the middle of all that he got engaged to and couldn't wait to marry. And when I was done reading those letters, I sat there on that couch in the basement and I asked myself a very hard question that I already knew the answer to. Are you still that guy? And I knew the answer was, nope, not like that. I've kind of figured things out. The years have gone on. Now people come to me to get mentored, to be trained. What happened to that drive? What happened to that eagerness? What happened to that openness? What happened to that willingness to try and to be shaped and to be molded and ask questions? What happened to that incredible passion? Hmm. Eagerly receive God's word. Let's just say, we don't need more information. We need to be moved and stirred. We don't just need another message, a sermon. We need a word from God, right? That's what we need. And we need to be eager to receive it. But if we go into it like this, we'll never receive it. But if we go into it like this, Lord, teach me, train me, mold me, shake me, convict me. Eagerly receive God's word. Secondly, Verse 11 tells us they were daily spending time in God's word. They were examining the scriptures daily. Daily, that shows a priority. What do we do daily? We eat, we sleep, we work, we do hygiene, we exercise. We do the things that are really important. They're the priority. Daily, they spent time in God's word. It became a habit you got to figure that time out. Is it early morning, late at night, in between? It's up to you. But the priority of the daily study of the Word of God. And I would say uh, devotionals can be fine. Don't get me wrong. But I'm talking about the Word of God. 
God's word, not somebody else's words about God's word, God's actual word. And third, they eagerly received God's word, they spent time daily in God's word, and then third, they examined God's word to verify if what was said is true. They examined it. They inspected it. They scrutinized it. They, they verified it. They investigated it. They questioned it. They didn't just take some preacher's word for it. They went in and said, is this true? And they began to dig and to ascertain and to try to figure it out. When I came back from that year with Josh McDowell, I was you know, in the middle of seminary, and uh, school was always a struggle for me. I had to work really hard. I didn't have one of those great minds who just could remember everything. But something happened in that year when I was away that I think I just grew up. I got married. And after that, I got much better grades. It's not because I became smarter. I know what the difference was. I went from, what do I need to do to get the grade? To, I need this stuff to learn. I need this stuff to grow. I need this stuff to be a good pastor. And I became hungry to learn and internalize it. And I began to go farther than what the professor would ask me to do. And I would investigate and I would dig and I would come up with things because I wanted it for me. When you get to that point, say, well, you know, you know, the preacher says you need to read the Bible every day. I'll do it because I'm supposed to. When you flip the switch to I'm doing it because I need it and I want it, it changes everything. And the good that comes out of it and the depth that comes out of it. I, I learned this wonderful thing. Um, I, I used to, when I was in Colorado, on Tuesdays, I would always go to the Denver Seminary Library because the seminary was fairly new to our church, near to our church. And, and I, would, I would go and I, all day I would study. I had my little cubicle. I would get there at eight o'clock when it opened and I would leave about five o'clock. And one day on a Tuesday, I was done at five o'clock. I was walking out. I was going to the parking lot and there was a man there. He was from China. He was a doctoral student. I'd seen him around the library off and on over the, the months, but I'd never met him. And he came up to me in the parking lot and he said, so how was your day of study? I said, it was good. It was fine. Thank you. He said, you know what my mother taught me? She taught me, don't just study about God, study with God. Because he's sitting there with you and it's his word. Let him teach you his word when you study it. Uh, oh, that's good. The spirit inside of us teaches us and helps us understand the things of the word of God. And there are times, I have to tell you this, this might sound weird, as I'm preparing a message or something and I'll be writing something down and I'm like, ooh, that's good. But I won't say, ooh, that's good, Mike. I'll be, way to go, Lord, thank you. That's from you. That's your insight into all of this. When you come to church, come eager. Bring your Bible. And then when you get home, verify what was said when you get home. And on a daily basis, read God's word. Let's soak in. Let it change you. It's God's word. It's not just a Bible. It's God's word. God, the king. His word. And the result, verse 12, many of them believed, including many of the prominent women. So verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, huh, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Man, they were really aggravated about these guys, right? Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who can conducted uh, Paul or escorted him, brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. 
So off they went again. And the word of God continued to spread. And then Ricky's going to take us through uh, Paul at Athens next week, which is a great, great account. Here's what I want us to get. If indeed Jesus is the king, if indeed he suffered and died so that our sins could be forgiven, if indeed he rose from the dead so that we could have new life and we believe in him and have eternal life so that when we die on this earth, we don't actually, actually die, we just physically die, but we go to an eternity with him. If that's all true, and then he has his word for us so that we can learn from him how to live this life. We are to be eager and daily spend time in it and examine it and verify it. And what will be the result of that? A life that is transformed. A life that is like Jesus Christ. Probably a good time to end before we blow away. If you have never received Jesus as the king in your life, if he's not the rule of your life, you can do so by believing that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Jesus is the one who came so that you might have eternal life. He did suffer and die for your sins and for my sins. Forgave them. If you ask for the forgiveness of your sins, he forgives them all and cleans you up. And he gives you the gift of eternal life because he overcame death so that we could have eternal life. Seek after him. Pray to him. Give your life to him. And follow him. Let's pray. If you have never given your life to Christ, you can pray this prayer with me right now, right here. Just from your heart, pray these words. Dear Lord God, I believe that Jesus, your son, is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. I believe that he came and he suffered and he died for my sins. And I ask you to forgive me of my sin and clean me up and make me new. I accept your gift of eternal life that comes through your son overcoming death. And I choose now to follow you and to serve you and to spend time with you and to learn from you and from your word. I give my life to you today. Make sure today, if you prayed that prayer, to tell somebody who knows Jesus, tell them today. Dear Lord, we thank you for the truths that are found in your word. Lord, of who you are, and what you've done. And Lord, may we be a church here at Morgan Hill Bible Church that is seen as noble out of our eagerness, out of our study, out of our daily routine of seeking after you. Lord, may we examine your word deep and learn more about you so we will become more like you. Thank you, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.